Storgy, the online magazine for lovers of fiction. Check out our dystopian and horror anthologies along with specialized merchandise. All these and more are available on our website, storgy.com. Okay, welcome everybody to episode five of the second series of Comma, the Comma Press uh, podcast. Uh, this series has so far been about the future, the history of the future, retro futurism and how the future is used by writers. But for this episode, we're going to make a Lorentz transformation from talking about time to talking about space. Uh, this episode is all about landscape and how British writers of all genres, not just horror and speculative fiction, have used landscape um, to escape from or to rediscover their real worlds. Uh, today, we're delighted to be joined by four guests, author M. John Harrison, writer and critic uh, Jennifer Hodgson and Andy Hedgecock, and writer and filmmaker Adam Scoville. Uh, just to introduce everybody a little bit more, uh, M. John Harrison is the author of 11 novels, two graphic novels, uh, and six short story collections. He has previously won the Boardman Tasker Award, the James Tiptree Jr. Award, and the Arthur C. C. Clarke Award. The publication of Settling the World, Selected Stories, 1970 to 2020, uh, by Comma this summer is, is really the occasion for today's podcast. Uh, Jennifer Hodgson is a writer, journalist, and critic. She's the editor of Unmapped, The Unmapped Country, a collection of lost short stories and fragments uh, by the radical 1960s writer Anne Quinn. Uh, she was previously UK editor of the Dolkey Archive Press. Adam Scoville is a writer and filmmaker. In 2015, he worked with Robert McFarlane on an adaptation of his bestseller, Holloway. He's worked alongside filmmakers Stanley Donwood, Ian Sinclair, and Paul Wright. His first book, uh, Folk Horror, Hours Dreadful and Things Strange, was published by Auto in 2017, and his novel, Mothlight, uh, was published in 2019 by Influx. Andy Hedgecock is a freelance writer and critic uh, and has been a member of the editorial collective at Interzone, Britain's longest running SF magazine since 2005, uh, where he writes the magazine's regular future interrupted column. He is a regular contributor to Black Static and, and the flash fiction editor uh, for the Morning Star. So first of all, M. John, or to his friends, Mike, uh, uh, I thought it would be uh, nice just to get you to read a short extract, uh, the opening extract from a new story uh, from the new book, uh, Landlocked. Would that be okay? That's fine. And I can do that. Starting now. Uh, there's no evil in the story, only loss and confusion. Palinurus, the navigator, fell off the boat and forgot his signature skill. Panic attacks, anxiety attacks and depressive episodes followed. You don't ask a builder, he, rem he remembered trying to explain to someone, if an arch is the truth about something. That isn't the point. For a moment before sunset, Light levels were distributed strangely across the landscape so that the coastal hills seemed closer than the house. You can either build an arch or you can't. After that, he drove from town to town, up and down the coast, deteriorating all the way, and no one heard from him again. Her journey was literally at right angles to his. Though she had never learned to drive, she found that after she had eaten a cab driver, it came easily to her, along with the local language. She left not long after him, heading north, following the steady rise of the land. But while the navigator clung to the coast, always keeping the sea to his left, she headed for the interior, seeking out middle-class landscapes with simple founding assumptions. A glass of wine in the evening, a toddler on the patio in the failing light, people waiting unexpectedly to find themselves in their real lives or unexpectedly trying to outlive the wrong ones all of their lives. Often 
she found them surrounded by a detritus of their own acts of abjection, symbolized in collections of rediscovered personal possessions from which they felt alienated. They often remarked that they wondered why they had these objects. She, meanwhile, kept a geranium in a pot in the back of the car, reached behind her now and then while driving to crush a leaf. Thank you, Mark. There's, there's so much just in those uh, three paragraphs we could talk about. We could, we could spend a whole hour talking about abjection and the, uh, the collecting of these objects. Um, but as I say, we're, I, I'm really fascinated by your use of landscape in all of your stories. And, in, uh, and that, uh, that little extract sort of highlights the way you're able to kind of use it in, com in, in, in combination with uh, some, some very kind of unlandscapey concepts. Um, speaking more generally, um, you use landscape in your work, perhaps in, in two, two different ways. Firstly, uh, in the extreme, extremely specific realism of your stories, uh, the, the, the very, very real locations that uh, they're rooted in. For instance, a young man's journey to Vericonium uh, names a very real cafe in Huddersfield. Um, I won't say which one it is, but I've Google mapped it and I'm going to visit it very soon. Uh, a very real cafe in Huddersfield in which the downstairs bathroom mirror offers a portal into a parallel world. And it's as if the specificity and the realism of, of this world is needed to counterweight the fantastical element within the stories. So that, that's one way in which you use uh, uh, landscapes. The other is, is really in your expo exploration sorry, of the other. There, there are several stories in, uh, of people coming into possession of, uh, of literary guidebooks uh, um, to, to other un uncharted lands. Uh, or, or kind of uh, maps or literary maps. Um, and it's as if uh, to be an other, it needs to have a place. There needs to be a landscape to that other. The, the, the character uh, in the East, for instance, can't just be a foreigner. You have to, you have to sort of uh, excavate the, the landscape in which he's come from. Is that a fair reading? Do you, do you find that um, otherness requires a, a landscape to it? I think it's a problem in a sense of, of authentication uh, when we're talking about fantasy or SF. A realist, uh, a mimetic realist uh, who, who, who speaks only of, say, London, doesn't really need to authenticate the text inside a landscape, whereas a fantasy writer has to do that. Um, it's therefore a question of, of, in a sense, making up a landscape or modifying a known landscape to do the job for you. Um, I felt very strongly to start with that you should set any kind of fantasy in, in, a, in a place that was as real as possible. But, but I think that was basically an oversimplification because you then have to ask yourself why. Uh, and it's not simply authentication and it's not simply that that, that fake realis realism, which is what fantasy is, both fantasy and science fiction, pretend to be real. The readers aren't interested in something that doesn't pretend that it's actually happening. It's a question of, for me, life almost began with landscape. My earliest memories are not of people, but of landscape. My uh, <clears throat> days as a child were spent as often as possible outside inside a landscape, whether it was a, a, a rural landscape to which I had access, or whether it was to the, what would now be called edgeland landscapes that I had, to which I had access. And I took advan full advantage of that access. Um, what were those landscapes? Where was that? Uh, that, was in the, that was in the Midlands, uh, in rugby, um, in and around rugby. Um, and then at 13, uh, I began to truant uh, and really uh, take advantage of, of being alone in a landscape. Um, mainly because by then, for me, the tension of being with people had become difficult and I needed to be on my own. When I began to write, I began to write almost instinctively out of that experience, out of landscape. Um, but I also began to 
to read almost exclusively among authors who I felt or who had stated overtly that for them character arose from landscape, that the, that the two were inseparable. And the obvious example of that, I think, in, in SF is, is Ballard. Um, whereas the obvious examples of it in, in, in the mimetic fiction and non-fiction of the 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s in Great Britain are numerous, you know, from H.E. Bates back to the travel writers of the, the Oxbridge travel writers of the 20s and 30s. Um, and now all the way up to writers like Rob, um, who are so bedded in landscape, it's really hard to tell what's geology and what's, what's psychology. Mm. When you when you start a story, do you do you often have the the, the location in mind? Is that one of the first things uh, you start with, and and do you build upwards, or are you like the the are you, are you Swiftian in that you start with an idea and then build down to the ground and then I, find I, the location? I never have an idea. I hate ideas. <laughs> I absolutely hate the concept of writing from ideas. It seems so limiting. Uh, I tend to start with bits and pieces that I've already observed. So I keep a lot of notebooks and I try to keep them full. Um, except in the case of something like climbers, I wouldn't, I wouldn't deliberately begin with the landscape. With, with climbers, it was impossible not to. Yeah. The issue was the landscape, basically. Um, and the issue was whether I was to write fiction or non-fiction or what I ended up doing, which was to basically question both as to, to the degree that I could by using the landscape. I will often start with items that I know will make a landscape if I shuffled them in the right order. Um, and along with that, along with the observations that, that made that possible fiction lands, fictional landscape, there'll be some characters attached as well, inevitably. You know, as you say, you, you, you know, if you spend your time in cafes in Huddersfield, eventually you will gather enough characters and enough interiors to be able to write the particular story that you're talking about there. Um, it, they, it always comes as a whole in the end, even though I start with a tiny little bit, I wouldn't continue with the story if after about a thousand words I hadn't recognised that there was a hole there waiting to be written, mm. that there was an organic unit there that would, that would eventually reveal itself from the processes of writing. You can see why I hate ideas. Yeah. Ideas are such a limitation. You don't want ideas, you want images. Mm. You want images and you want a basic, you want your own basic internal idea of what is, really which confirms or, or authorises the order you're going to put the bits in mm. and, and therefore what kind of story they're going to produce at the end of it. You, you talk about uh, the influence of Ballard and the importance of Ballard. I, know it's, I thought I'd bring Jen in at this point because Jen, in your forward to, to his new selected stories, you, you identify uh, M. John as being part of a, a generation that emerged in the 60s inspired by what you call the, 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 the wonkiest fringes of late modernism um, and, and critical theory, writers like uh, Anne Quinn, B.S. Johnson, J.G. Ballard, Aldous, Moorcock and so forth, uh, for whom the idea that fiction should, be, uh, should, should mimic our attempts to know the world or present the world as, as, as knowable or, uh, was, was anathema. I just I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why you identify him, uh, M. John, within that, within that generation, and what uh, what that generation more broadly uh, did with landscape, or how they how they kind of used landscape. Uh, yeah, well, um, that generation of writers is uh, is an interesting one because what they what they what they are what they've intuited and what they're working through in fiction. Uh, I think is something that we consider uh, of as being imported sometime in the mid 70s from Europe. Um, there's a kind of really interesting uh, intersection between the kind of critical theory that was coming through uh, from Europe and a tradition of writing um, in Britain, uh, of whom the, the wonky late modernists that I mentioned in the foreword are a part, 
where uh, they'd really they'd really intuited the same thing at the same time but they were working over the same sort of territory in fiction the same kind of questions about about truth and the same kind of like intermingling of um of of real and unreal i'm thinking about people like henry green and elizabeth bowen and william sansom rena heppenstall ivy compton burnett the sort of prehistory of of the generation the kind of 60s generation uh that i was talking about and i mean in terms of landscape um uh i'm gonna talk about anne quinn here because i'm trying to write a book about her um, uh, and i don't know it's it's a, it's a similar idea of um of that enmeshing of like the the interior landscape and the exterior landscape i mean i often think of the way that you know well quinn quinn approaches landscape like uh she wants to be in it you know quinn is full of those kind of what freud calls oceanic feelings um or uh, some of quinn's fictions read a bit like a sort of francesca woodman photograph where it's really impossible to uh locate the border between uh like her body and the setting in which she she finds herself in terms of the realism of those landscapes i don't know if it's about specificity it seems to me that this kind of um uh, what i want to call like a neo-phenomenological tradition that these people are all writing in are about kind of like uh uh transforming those landscapes and the kind of uh, processes of like projection and identification where you can't work out which is which in these kind of heightened states of, per of perception they have that kind of interest in landscape i think cool you you also talk about um how in your in, in your forward you talk about how a lot of the characters in m john's work kind of wake up one day and uh, look to the heavens and and suddenly realize the world doesn't quite make sense you talk about that, the fact that their country their culture and their way of life has run itself into the ground and that the solution for this is somehow there somehow within reach almost in the liminal spaces between things in the in the in the cracks between the cracks um and you talk about how many of m john's characters are, are, are maddened by a hieroglyphic sense that everything is trying to tell them something mm. um and they start trying to crack the code they appoint themselves as amateur detectives uh to to collect and decipher these glitches um and they see themselves as kind of explorers uh uh, for whom all their problems would be solved if only they could finally reach that other place. I'm thinking of stories like Agnaro and The Gift. Um, in, in this way, landscape is, is both the thing being fled from and the thing being fled to. Is, is that a fair sort of uh, reading of, 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 those, of how you read those characters? Yeah, I mean... I guess for me, what comes out of that is 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 the idea that the the secret that the the secret is that there is no secret. You know, um, the the real mystery is uh, right in front of them, and they're 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 blind to it because they're you know busied with uh, creating their own imaginary worlds. There's a weird way in which in in which that is like a sort of existential conundrum is rooted in ideas that are much more part of the quotidian to do with uh, culture and politics and geography. Um, you know, one, one of the interesting things I find in these writings is, is, is the sort of, like, these, these people, there's no place that they can be. Uh, there's, there's these kind of um, uh, enormous anxieties about their own provinciality. There's, you know, anxieties about their past rooted in uh you know small northern industrial towns they have a terror of you know the the, the te like these visions terrifying visions of the 10 foot at the back of their house um and then but they go to the city and they're no happier than the, you know that the, the, the metropolis doesn't serve them either and so they they embark upon this process of of inventing these uh these imaginary places as if that will kind of bring them some some solace but uh what always seems to what always the, the kind of what's always happening is that they always seem to be getting it getting it wrong like they're they're kind of embarking on the the wrong quest they're becoming kind of epistemological detectives when they should really be ontological ones because the real mystery is right in front of them the whole time you know and it's it's almost like they're they become experts and and kind of obsessive researchers into something and that is exactly 
uh, their their kind of flaw. There's the trap they're they're, uh, they're, they're setting for themselves. Mm. Um, Mike, um, in many of your stories, there's kind of uh, there's even even when you go to entirely new places, like uh, the one particular story that fascinates me and I think still kind of fascinates you is the causeway um, in which you've got an, an alien people but you're still writing about their relationship uh, on a, you know it's on a faraway planet um, but you're still writing about their relationship with a very physical space that they find themselves in and the, the landscape and the to topography of that landscape it's as if you're saying even aliens need very very detailed maps um, and I wonder if this feeds into something that uh, you say you've said elsewhere about world building. You've been a bit of a, a critique of of a certain type of fantasy, what you call world built fantasy, where you say uh, you talk about the dangers of that uh, of of that type of fantasy. Uh, you say world built fantasy is over engineered and under designed. Uh, a world can actually be built in a sentence, but world built fantasy is is not interested in the economy, and as such, it's a very big space, but there's very little in it. Uh, with, when you go entirely into a fantastical space, your kind of concern is with the the incredibly sort of detailed and specific details and contours of that of that space. Um, why is that? <laughs> I'm glad you ended on that. <laughs> the answer is really simple. It's because the world is like that when you're in it. That really, I. One of the questions you've got to ask yourself when you start writing science fiction is, is how, how, do you, how do you write somewhere that isn't real? And the only model you have is somewhere that is real and your relationship with it. Um, my relationship at the time of writing that story was, was just the beginning of my interest in British upland geomorphology and, and cracks and rock and being in the world in that particular way. Um, but it was a kind of arc back to being a tiny little boy and being so intensely involved with a, a bucket of sandy water on a beach that I had to be dragged away from it. Um, to me, to, to be in the world is the thing. And the only thing to write about is to be in the world, even if it's a made up world, that's what you write about. And if you look at most of those stories, they're, they're about being in the world. Um, Jen hits it on the head with the phenomenology thing, you know, straight away. Well, I think from the beginning, I was trying to invent a personal phenomenology. Um, and I take the point about epistemology and ontology too, you know, for me, they've always like wavered <laughs> from one to the other. Um, but certainly for me, it's all about being in a world. Um, either the one that you have to invent on behalf of the reader to authenticate the, the story or the real one, which you're hoping in some way to transmit to the reader. You know, Climbers was a nightmare for me because it finally brought me face to face with the absolute impossibility of passing on to the reader what you can see. And I gave up at that point. That was the point at which I realized I'd been beaten, that I was never gonna be a landscape painter because I'm a writer. But does that involve stepping back a little bit from trying to say exactly what the world is like? I've never stopped. It's just that I don't, I, I, I cannot allow I cannot allow myself to have the kind of intensity uh, of, of ambition in that area because it's never going to work. And I will just, you know, bang my head against that brick wall until I'm dead. Um, I think at that point I began to recognize that there must be other things in writing than making the perfect image of a crag, that I wasn't there to photograph things. The joke is I already knew that. I'd already read enough theory to know damn well that I couldn't do that. But even so, you're still trying to do it. It's still as if you're writing a letter to a friend. You know, I arrived today. You should see the view from the window. It's astonishing. Um, uh, I think behind a lot of fantasy, that is the impulse. Whether it's 
hallucinogenic fantasy or whether like a lot of say Tolkien it, it's it's simple geological replication you know he's very good at the geomorphology of of, of his of his built world I, I want to bring in uh, Adam Scoville at this point um I guess Adam um the word one of the words that's uh, kind of lurking around this conversation is is psychogeography psycho and uh, although it's had its heyday as a concept a couple of decades ago and it's less popular as a concept now, underpinning that is a very much more serious kind of theory of Derrida's, uh, namely hauntology. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how it works as a, as a, me a mechanism when applied to pieces of landscape in the critiquing of, of, of literature, film and TV. I think the first thing to say is that it's actually become quite genrefied of late and has become almost an aesthetic, which is not how I see it. Originally, it was a narrative mechanism, which was popularized by Mark Fisher, but which was derived from uh, Jacques Derrida's Spectres of Marx. And it was all about different augmenters on the present tense, in particular in narrative work. And it works on in both directions. So in, in one sense, it can be about past traumas and history sort of interred and threatening to repeat and the present cannot forget that trauma on the other hand the present being augmented as an anticipator of future events that haven't yet happened so for me at least narratives kind of can be split roughly between those two instigators rather than it being as it's known today this sort of aesthetic which fetishizes 1970s public information films old tv cult shows uh, penguin covers and that sorts of thing. It's gone down that route, which I think is a bit of a shame, but actually when you put it onto a narrative, it becomes more than just a sort of ghost box records aesthetic. It becomes a, an interesting way as to the things that we perhaps want to forget but can't or the things that we fear and haven't yet happened yet. Moving on to, to Andy, um, but the, going back to this kind of British landscape and its role within British and English speculative fiction and horror writing, um, fans of fans of uh, these genres, sorry for using the word genre in this case, um, kind of uh, hold these landscapes very dear to, the, to their hearts. And I'm not just talking about goths descending on Whitby every year. Uh, the, the Britishness or the Englishness of these stories is inseparable from them. Uh, and, and writers like Rob McFarlane have, have called this uh, the English eerie. Um, another word, eerie is another word that's used in association with M. John's work a lot. Um, why have why have, have British writers, English writers, found these landscapes so eerie? <clears throat> it's a really difficult question because of, obviously every continent has um, its slowly ge geologically evolving places that 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 change very gradually, and every G twenty country, for example, has its erased post-industrial places, it, its liminal places like. The one I'm sitting in right now, we're sitting. I'm sitting in a, a former mining area um, that has aspirations to become a, a tourist area and is getting quite desperate about it. Um, interestingly enough, it's it's the same area that Robert McFarlane grew up in. He's actually from the from the next village, so this this sort of post-industrial East Midlands um, was was where he, he he started writing as well um, so loads of different places have these kind of features so if we're looking for something sort of uniquely English why why are we interested in English uh, the English eerie landscape it, it becomes quite I think you have to separate it from the landscape itself and look at other factors I think there are there are sort of cultural drivers um, behind this as well um, Blake Morrison said said something about um, in English literature after the 19th century there was a sense of everything falling to bits um, and he said it was almost as if every generation had a sense that a, a period of a thousand years was coming to an end in their lifetime and they were the last people to see it and I think there's an element of, of that about it and something Jen said was, was very interesting earlier. She, she talked about characters who um, struggle in rural settings and she said the metropolis doesn't serve them either. And I think that's a very common thread in, in English eerie writing. 
So if you start with a story like H.G. Wells' Door in the Wall, um, there's, it's a, it's a very, very ambiguous story. It, it's a story about um, a character who has a sense of the deficiencies of the world. He isn't happy with his own worldliness, if you like. He isn't happy with his um, professional life, particularly. Um, he's got this sort of yearning for a moment that was lost in his, in his childhood. And you've got uh, a narrator who, who is completely ambivalent about this. At one stage he says his mind's darkened with questions and, and riddles. And it's a balance, but you have to decide as a, as a reader whether the main character is undergoing some kind of psychosis, whether he's experiencing some kind of vision, and it's a sort of collision of um, basically imagination and Thanatos. It's almost as if his possibility of escape is coupled with almost the certainty of, of death. It's a very, very strange story. And I think it's sort of, it's an urban landscape. It's the sort of gray, disappointing, dusty streets of a certain area in London, which I don't think is ever specified. And then you've got this um, place he visits on, on one occasion, and it's like something out of perhaps one, you know, the sort of era of Max Ernst paintings when he did jungles. It's sort of like entering a Max Ernst painting. So you're flipping between this black and whiteness of, of the city and this imagined landscapes, which is within it, but not within it. And it all gets very um, um, ambiguous. And I, th I think that ambiguity is central to this notion of eeriness because it creeps cropping up in, in other writers as, as well. So Robert Aikman, um, wow. The Stains, um, very different story in, in tone, but there's, there's some commonality with, with the door in the wall there. You've got a chap who's undergone, um, th there's been a tragedy, his, his wife's died um, young, he's a widower. He goes off from London to the north um, to stay with his, with his brother. And he gets sucked into something that may or, not, may or may not be happening. Um, there's a strange woman he, he encounters and becomes completely obsessed by. And then she seems to have some sort of, um, she seems, her body seems to be being taken over with lichen, and then later so does his. But that's all very strange as well. And again, it's, it's this collision of the possibility of, of escape and the, the, the sort of threat of extinction that, that goes with it. And that seems to be something that's sort of very, very, a very, very common thread. Um, throughout eerie fiction, Part particularly those that, that have switches between urban and bucolic landscapes. Can I jump in there for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's worth noting that when uh, in Robert's, Robert McFarlane's article on the English eerie, as, as he calls it, the main story that he uses to uh, zone in on those ideas is A View from a Hill by M.R. James. Uh, that story where there's a pair of binoculars which have been cured with the boiled down bones of an alchemist and when the viewer puts them to their eyes they can't see the landscape as it is in their present day but uh, in a much further past and there's something in that past which actually comes to the viewer of said binoculars and I think that the reason why Robert chose that story was because it's very the eerie comes as much from a particular perception of landscape and who is perceiving it which ultimately to tie back to, to M. John's work reminds me of that, that quote from Climbers, which I'm going to butcher now by getting it totally wrong, but how when someone enters a landscape, it becomes yeah. another one. And that for me is why both M.R. James's work, or very, very different, actually joins up in some level to something like Climbers because they both understand that that eeriness is the change in perception when you enter a place. Yeah. Do you recognise these, Mark, in, in your work? Do you recognise these, these links uh, and, and this eerie in your... Yeah, I mean, much of it is, in fact, even conscious. Um, that, that particular observation um, came from my own childhood. I never, I've never settled with the idea that you can't walk into the landscape. 
you you only ever walk into a different one i i sort of can't bear that i find it really difficult um it's as if as as a, a very small child i expected to be able to walk into a picture and and yet it still remains a picture uh very curious but i recognize all these all these illusions and references. Um, the door in the wall is, is a pivotal concept, really, in Edwardian fiction and late Victorian fiction. They had a desperate need to go beyond themselves in some way. I think that story is an allegory. I mean, frankly, I think that is an allegory of a life. It's really about a life. It's really about a life that you spent one way and wish you'd spent it another. And by the time you can afford, as it were, psychologically, uh, financially, to live a life, it's too late. It's gone. You're dead. It's over. Um, that seems to be a central kind of mourning um, of, of the possibilities uh, that's very strong in my stuff. Um, that was my favourite story for a very long time, The Door in the Wall. So they're all, that's all quite familiar to me, yeah. There's, there's also, just if, we, if we're sticking with this, this idea of specific landscapes and types of landscape, there's a, there's a very specific sort of topology which uh, recurs in, or type or, or feature which recur, recurs in a couple of your stories, Mike's, uh, which is the causeway, this idea of a, a road or a, a path or a groove under, under the sea emerging. It, it appears in Settling the World, it appears in uh, the, the causeway itself. And it, and it seems to be, uh, this, there seems to be something about the tracks that we make in our, in our movements, uh, which, which kind of haunts you or comes back to your writing. Do you know, do you have any sense of why that is or where that comes from? I mean, I think in those two specific cases, it's to do with, they're, they're, they're both transitional states. Quite obviously, the, the causeway that comes up out of the water in settling the world is coming from somewhere. And quite obviously, the causeway and the causeway is going to somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, they're both metaphors of, of transitionality, as it were. Um, I hadn't noticed this. I mean, was always and still am the worst navigator in the world. That's the Palinurus joke in the bit that I read. And... Uh, my real talent as a navigator was getting lost <laughs> and if you're <laughs> if you're obsessed with not getting lost you tend to pay a lot of attention to both the, the ground and the map <laughs> so that may be why you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of very precise directions in my <laughs> stories <laughs> which is generally my attempt to follow some some kind of inner precise direction i mean what we haven't uh, what we haven't looked at is the idea that all landscapes are inner landscapes as well mm. and it does occur to me that my obsession with landscape in terms of a navigational arena <laughs> has to do with navigating one's internal spaces as well there is this there is this very physical correlation in the story running down you have uh this character lyle who is so convinced that he's cursed that he's not just had bad luck throughout his life but there's some kind of curse hanging over him that at the climax of the story there's a there's a kind of an earthquake there's a the the, the mountain the rock face that he's ascending sort of uh, starts crumbling and it's a very literal kind of seismic correlation between his inner breakdown his emotional breakdown um and the, the physical space around him um as witnessed by a third party uh and it it's it's almost it's like a physical projection of and that it, that goes back to uh what we were saying earlier about this uh this idea of when you were saying with robert mcfarlane and, and the writers that he influences there's um there's almost no distinction it's, it's impossible to to know whether you're talking about geology or or psychology um is that a conscious effort in your work to kind of externalize the inner world in that way or is it are they already blent together in your in your creative process bit of both i think you know you, you use the um use the intuitive the intuitive stuff to get to get the story structured and moving but the moment you get it moving then the flow between the inner and the outer is just that's set up by then halfway through the story i might go ah so that's what 
part of the internal landscape this is about and I might make a modification according to that but generally I think it's enough to let your your heart do the work kind of thing um, but then I am steeped in and obsessed by landscape and that's all there is to it so that it could be that whenever I look for a metaphor that's where I look it reminds me of uh, the kind of the mirroring of the ex the physical landscape with the character's internal world reminds me of of uh, the ravine in, in Dickens and uh, the signal man and there, there does seem to be a lot of um, this idea that there's a there's a there's a emotional no, it's not just a correlation but it's all, almost a uh, a record of a trauma that that the landscape can can record and it it also brings in these ideas of the, the stone tape uh, this this yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of pseudo scientific theory of of buildings being able to record emotional human trauma like like uh, the etches on a vinyl record or or you know the recordings on a magnetic tape and and I know, I know, Adam. You've worked in this in this area as well. You've uh, you've looked at the the Holloways of of Dorset and uh, and kind of uh, explored this idea of the of the physical topography, the shape being a record of 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 trauma. And uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, I think um, the first first thing to say is that by all accounts, I think Dickens, when he was writing the Signalman, was probably suffering from what we would now call PTSD because uh, he was in a train crash a couple of years before and that, that short story which I think is probably one of the best short stories ever written is uh, an embodiment of that that trauma that he he suffered and carried with him until he died not long after that um, and the way that he sketches the landscape in that story uh, in it's it's being uh, it's being psychologized from the off by this narrator even though the narrator is not the person himself who is uh, going to be uh, receiving omens of the trauma in that story. Uh, in regards to the Holloways, um, I remember when I went to film in them, which was several years after Robert had gone there with Roger Deacon and he'd gone there with Stanley Donwood and, and Dan Richards, that uh, in his book, uh, he was using all these allusions to water and the paths trickle. And I went there, unlike him when he went in summer, I went there in January in a winter and found uh, the pathways to be very literally flooded. So all of a sudden these metaphors that he was using were realized quite accidentally and completely by these paths which were far from paths but were sort of small rivers going up and down these, these Dorset, uh, Dorset stone paths. Um, it's, it's, I also I did not enjoy my time in the Holloways at all. I thought it was a really unsettling place. I was there on my own and uh, I, I think Robert's book is quite positive in that the ghosts, are, uh, there's a melancholy to those ghosts uh, around those paths for him on a personal level, but also the history of the, the Catholic priests there fleeing persecution. I find it quite negative, partly because it was winter, but the, the sense that the history was interred there. And if you walked it enough, it would start to, at least on an emotional, psychological level, repeat or just because you become aware of it was very much palpable. I wouldn't go there again, I don't think genuinely wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Andy I was I was gonna ask you a little bit about what some of the this, these types of speculative fiction and some of these examples of these narratives lose when they lose their original landscape uh, we talked a little bit uh, bef before the podcast about how um, a many classic kind of English stories of, of science fiction and of horror have been denuded, have been stripped of their original uh, landscapes. Um, just a couple of examples, Hitchcock's The Birds uh, the f is obviously set in America, the film, uh, but you wouldn't know it if you've not read the original story that it's actually about Cornwall and it's kind of about the Blitz in London. H.G. Uh, Wells' is Surrey plays a large part in the original War of the Worlds, but you wouldn't know it if you've seen any version of the film of the War of the Worlds. Um, Candyman, the, the film series is set in America, but you wouldn't know that it's, uh, it's based on a short story that's set in about um, a housing estate in Liverpool. I just wonder what is left, you know, by that, by that loss. And is it, is it inevitable or is it a complete kind of uh, bastardization of, of those original stories? Well, D Daphne de Moray absolutely hated the birds, didn't she? She, um, yeah. she, she, she was appalled with the, the Hitchcock version. 
um, and and then love Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, which, which did take liberties with the story, but in a different kind of way. But she absolutely she absolutely detested the American setting. When I when I saw that film, I was a, I was a child, and quite enjoyed it on its on its own terms. It wasn't until years later that I read the story, and I think once you once you've read the story, it sort of wrecks the film for you slightly. The problem you've got is that the the film ceases to to refer to the original place, and it refers to the book, doesn't it? It's it, it it's actually its only point of reference isn't a real location. It's just some aspect of of, of the book, and that does does show through sometimes. I'm trying. I was trying to think of books that you really couldn't imagine um, being adapted in into um, a movie and and set somewhere else. So what couldn't possibly be set in America? Um, Graham Joyce's Year of the Ladybird, if anybody's read that, about the long hot summer of 1976, and it's it's a it's a ghost story, or is it? it? It's 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 a liminal fiction set in a holiday camp in Skegness in the long hot summer of 1976, with uh, the National Front on the rise. So there's, the, Britain is on the brink of, 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 of heading towards fascism. You know, the, it, it was a dangerous moment, but you cannot imagine any aspect of that story being transposed to an American setting and making any kind of sense. Because the particular place is so pivotal in, in the narrative and in the formation of the key characters that it just couldn't possibly work. So that that you know, as an example of something that couldn't transfer, you you you've 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 got that. Um, there are other things where you you couldn't uh, that would be very difficult to adapt to a different setting, and that's even true of imaginary landscapes. So Susanna Clarke's Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell, or Norrell, um, that that. That draws on English traditions, on English myths, on settings that draw in turn on settings in, in English literature. You couldn't do a version of that that transposed itself to American literature or, or an American quasi setting. I just can't imagine that. So I guess the short answer is it, it depends. It depends on the order in which you, you, you come upon the adaptation and the original. And it depends how mired the original is in, in the culture to some extent. I'm not sure I agree with Andy uh, on the reason there. For me, it would seem to depend almost entirely on the degree to which the original contains a storyable story. If it does, you can remove it to any landscape and it'll work. And that's what they look for, isn't it? When they're making movies, they look for a story. They don't look for a landscape. They're not looking for a landscape. They don't believe, and they and and they don't need to believe that a landscape, uh, that the story comes up out of the landscape. The story is a separate thing. It's a separate item. You have quite a uh, a low opinion of the word story or the idea. Did it show? Well, I mean, explain that a little bit. I think it's perhaps an, an, an ex, it's a radical expression of the um, of what I feel. But I think that since Hollywood, since Hollywood formalism and some forms of structuralism, narratology, various forms of narratology, have burnt everything out of story that isn't plot. A narrative structure and that there's a belief which I share to to the degree that I was that I began as a, as a writer of pop, short popular fiction um, that, that, that narrative structure is this kind of cup into which you pour everything else uh, that essentially it that it's a structure that, that has an independent life that it's describable that it has a natural history um, 
and that we now know all about it and we can make uh, we can make a proper story again and again and again and again as if we have an assembly line. I obviously don't want to see stories like that. I would like to see stories in which the rules are constantly broken, the closure is not provided, the, uh, the balance between the early part of the structure and the later part of the structure is upset by real things which may or may not have occurred. I'd, I'd like to see stories that are closer to the stories that you have in life, that you mm -hmm. see in life, which, which maybe reflect the structure of the anecdote, for instance, or, or the autobiography, uh, rather than this machine that we have for, for telling what's essentially the same story over and over and over again, because story is a structure. It is, of course, it's a structure. But uh, Frank Cottrell Boyce talks about the Mr. Men uh, narratology of Hollywood, uh, Hollywood film writing, where you, you meet uh, act one, you meet Mr. Messy and you realize um, uh, the reasons for his messiness is he's got a bad relationship with his father or something. Act two, uh, Mr. Messy loses his job, uh, loses his girlfriend, things get worse. Act three, um, he, he reunites with his father um, and uh, smartens up. <laughs> You know, it's, and, and there is a real, there is a real absolute hatred for that kind of uh, narratology. But it also, but what you're talking about also feeds back into what uh, Jen was talking about at the beginning of uh, these, these writers that were rejecting kind of uh, this idea that we can, you know, we can learn something, we can know the world, we can, mm. we can sort the world out, we can settle the world into, into a shape that we understand through, through fiction. Yeah, I mean, what you, what you um, what the the writers that we've been talking about were really reacting against uh, was like you know the the old kind of like um, Matthew Arnold uh, kind of Levis sort of tradition of criticism of uh, narrative having like a moral value um, had been replaced had been replaced by the same thing but just in a different guise, which was that narratives are uh, survival strategies that we can use to work ourselves out and, and increasingly <laughs> I mean you know my my training is as a narratologist but I was only ever a narratologist that wanted to like dig my nails into narratives and like peel them apart so I could understand how they work because um, I don't think it's too too paranoid to say that I find narratives to be to have the certainly the potential of being extremely malign things um, and that's not only as, you know, I'm one of those guys that, you know, I prefer the books that have no plots. Like I am that guy, of course I am. Um, but within that is not just like a sort of willful obscurantism. It's also like a longing for the world to be other than how it is. And a belief that if we're, if, you know, if, um, that, that oftentimes what we're doing when we're writing narratives is simply like recapitulating and reaffirming the structure, the structures of the world as is. And yeah. That's not what we should be doing, guys. <laughs> you know, it's, it, like, it's not just willful perversity to be interested in what is called the experimental novel. It's just the idea that, that life is not really like that. And there's like a, there's like a very explicit and malign political, course, uh, political kind of uh, driver to, to kept continuing to reproduce those forms. And that, and that literary narratives are not just literary narratives, that there's a kind of uh, seepage into into life and the way that we understand ourselves and our position in the world, you know. For those listening at home who won't be able to see this, uh, M. John just raised his fist and, and shook it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whilst Jen was saying that, uh, you are, you are, obviously everybody's in agreement with that. Is there any, are there any dissenting voices about that? Does anyone like narratives? I mean, we just... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to dissent a bit because I love Hollywood. <laughs> I know, I'm not saying that. I don't, I don't love Hollywood. Um, I just think there's a I, th I think um, I think um, when we talk about Hollywood in terms of a, a narrative difference to say novel novel narratives, um, Hollywood is such a huge thing, and its output has been so huge for the last hundred or so years that I'm I'm usually averse to virtually any. 
uh, generalization about it because as soon as you could pick out one single year, you could pick out dozens of films that play against any set of rules, whether they've set them sure. uh, or, or, or not. So I, I, I know what the, the shorthand is that, is that comes from Hollywood. Um, but, but certainly when you start to pick it apart, uh, I mean, I watch a film a day and I haven't scratched the surface of uh, any national cinema, never mind one as, one as productive and fruitful as, as Hollywood since its foundings in the last the beginnings of the last century. So I, I have a general agreement, but uh, it's just the, the, the film me and me is, is flowing. Yeah, I'll, I'll fly the flag for some of Hollywood, not all of it, obviously, but some of it. <laughs> Thank you. I guess I guess one of the, the biggest criticisms is this idea of closure and this idea of, of, of meaning in narrative uh, and that uh, closure kind of is the most important part. The, the flip side of that or the paradox of that is people often say that short stories are about an ending. Um, people often sort of anatomize the short story as, as being teleological, as being sort of wrapped around an end point and you join the short story at the brink of an ending, not perhaps not aware that you're at the brink of an ending, uh, but what happens is the surprise, sudden collapse of everything, um, or, or a turning point which marks an ending. So, so I, I, I wonder if if you recognise any of that any of that tension, Mike. Uh, do you kind of uh, rail against this idea of closure and the importance put on endings whilst also working in short fiction? I would separate the two, actually. I like the idea of a false closure. I like the idea of running a short story into a wall at the end, the, mm -hmm. the way they do. Um, and what being, as it were, revealed, apparently not having any relevance whatsoever <laughs> to what you've just read. So that you're forced to, as the reader, you're forced to go back and read it again. You know, this is this, this comes down to my belief that fiction wants to live. Fiction wants to be constantly being read, and so, to a degree, I try to produce short stories that that, that force you to go back and read them again because you go, what? Why did that happen? <laughs> um, but you can have that kind of ending, but with closure as well, because you just oh yes. You didn't see the clues and you read it again and the second time you go, oh yeah, all these, this, it all makes sense now. And on the second reading, it makes sense. Yeah, you can, you could. I won't because I hate closure. <laughs> I mean, I hate the concept of closure. I hate the idea that I'm supposed to produce it for anybody. The closures that I do read are always boring. They don't tell me anything I didn't know already as a reader or as a human being. Um, what I'm looking for a story to do is place me somewhere else. Uh, and, and, and also to do this, to do the thing that Jen was just talking about, which is to try and strip away some of the facade of closure as a technique in fiction and, and maybe try and reveal a bit of of the as yet untold stories and structures that, 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 that it assumes. You know, we assume that, a story assumes that. Um, I don't know anything about this, but I did read something the other day which suggested that essentially the epiphanic short story didn't really exist before the, the early modernists. Well, it depends but it's on... Quite, it's quite a new structure in the world, as it were. Yeah. Mm. I guess it depends on what you mean by epiphany. Um, there's external epiphanies, you know, like Sherlock Holmes saying that guy did it. There's there's explan explanatory kind of closure. Uh, it's a, it, that's that's what a lot of traditional kind of pre-modern stories hooked on. I think closure is a great place to close this conversation. See what I did there. Uh, thank you. We've we've uh, we've gone we've gone in and out of landscape, uh, and yet we've not been in it. We've uh, we've tried to thrust ourselves upon it, and every time we've done that, we've uh, we've changed it. Uh, but uh, thank you for joining me in this attempt. Please, uh, yeah. So it, it, I guess it just remains for me to to thank our guests today: uh, Jen Hodgson, uh, Andy Hedgecock, Adam Scoville, and uh, M. John Harrison. Thank you very much, and. Uh, I encourage everybody to to tune into the next episode. Brilliant! Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Anthology seeks to publish and promote exceptional literary short fiction. We take pride in discovering new and emerging talent, so if you have a story, visit us at Storgy.com. Discover the macabre secrets of the eerie town of Shallow Creek, blast into dystopian worlds with Exit Earth, or find the blackened husk of the American dream with Roger McKnight's Hopeful Monsters. Competitions with cash prizes and merchandise that any book lover will cherish? Check out Storgy.com today.